Welcome back, everybody. We are just getting started now on the second unit of our Mariology tutorials. We took a break for Advent and Christmas. Even though Christmas is still going on, of course, we did our Advent book club for a couple of weeks, and now we're right back to our normally scheduled tutorials. Our first unit covered the biblical foundations of our Mariology, and we spent a lot of time on that. So hopefully what we'll be doing over the next month or two before Lent will build on top of that. Now, what we'll be spending our time on the next few weeks is the doctrine of the divine motherhood or the doctrine of the Theotokos, the God-bearer. So welcome back. Thanks so much for being here. And let's get into the next episode. Today, what we want to cover is a couple of notes on some contemporary issues in Mariology, as well as an introduction to the doctrine of the divine motherhood. So when we look back on the history of sacred theology, and we think about the different issues in Mariology, there are a number of different things that we could talk about. What probably makes the most sense, though, is to look at how the scholastics treated their Mariology. Now, Mariology for the scholastics was intrinsically set in relation to questions about Christ in the Incarnation. They treated the, the topics, they treated the questions together. So, for example, if you look in St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, he puts his treatise on Mariology, if we want to call it that, the uh, set of questions he asks about the nature and person of Our Lady, right in the middle of his uh, treatise on Christ. So in the third part, in the tertiapars of the Summa, we get a large section on the incarnation, on Mary, and on Christ's life before we get to St. Thomas's teaching on the sacraments. And it's very interesting because he puts the questions on Mary in between the questions on the incarnation and questions on Christ's public life. So he sandwiches his treatment of Mary, if we want to say that, in between these two major topics. There are 59 questions on Christology. So in the Tertiapars, questions 1 through 59 deal with St. Thomas's teaching on Christ himself, and questions 60 to the end deal with the sacraments. And it's interesting because there are a couple of questions right in the middle on the sanctification, the virginity, the marriage, the annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, as well as a number of questions on the manner of Christ's conception. So you see how for St. Thomas, and he is no different than any of the other major figures of this time period, questions about who Mary is and why she's important are set directly in relation to Christology and the person of Christ and the reality of the incarnation. If you're at all aware of the topic of Mariology in the 20th century, however, you'll know that usually 
questions about Mariology are set in relation to questions about the church. And so that's a really interesting comparison, right? If you ask, well, what does Mariology concern it with relationally? You have these two different perspectives, either it's related to Christology or it's related to ecclesiology. Now, when we get to the early modern period, early moderns begin to treat Mariology as its own subject, all the way up to what we could call the neo-Thomism of the early 20th century, um, with figures like Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, for instance, would be kind of the, the prototypical example of this. The resource Mont movement, however, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, that wanted to go back to the sources, right? wanted to go back to emphasizing the biblical roots of Catholic theology and the patristic roots of theology as well. They want to trace the roots of Mariology back to the sources to retrieve the neglected aspect of Mary's relation to and with the church. So that's where you get this very interesting re-emphasis in the 20th century on Mariology and the theology of the church. So what you end up having is a kind of competition, I suppose, a friendly competition, of course, where you have a Christocentric Mariology up against an ecclesiocentric Mariology. Now, the ecclesiocentric model is considered a neglected motif in the 20th century. So Mary's relation to the church as the church's origin Mary as the church's exemplary member, Mary as the church's eschatological icon, etc. Now, it is technically a false dichotomy, of course. The same issues appear in Christology and ecclesiology as well. We know that the church is the body of Christ, but they're not identical, are they? The church is the body of Christ. But that doesn't mean that this is the only comparison that we could use when we talk about the church. There's a number of different images and a lot of different vocabulary. So the same thing is happening here. We shouldn't pick and choose one to the exclusion of the other. We don't want to reject a Christocentric or ecclesiocentric model just because we happen to prefer the other one, right? We need both of these together. So that new emphasis will be important as we go on to talk about this reality of the divine motherhood because Mary's role in relation to both Christ and the church is very important. It's just that at different historical eras of the church, you have an emphasis on one or the other. We need both, of course. It's just a very very curious and interesting thing that you get this major emphasis on the Christology that happens in Mariology in the sort of medieval period, whereas now with the modern period, you get this emphasis on Mary's relation to the church. That's why you get the section on Mariology in Lumen Gentium in Vatican II, right? It's set in relation to the church's teaching about herself. So you see that emphasis there. Now, if we want to get into questions about the divine motherhood, it's useful to start here because it brings us directly from our previous episodes 
on the biblical foundations of our Mariology right here up to the beginning. So the biblical data reminds us that Mary should be thought of first in relation to the Trinity. We have this revelation of the Trinity in the story of the Annunciation in the Gospel of Luke. So we read there about how she is graced and predestined by the Father, how she is overshadowed by the Spirit in order to, of course, bear the Son into the world. So we are introduced to the biblical figure of Mary in light of the three persons of the Trinity. Now, Mary's predestination as I mentioned just a moment ago, right? We, we hear about how she is set apart, specially in grace by God. This is directly related to her predestination. Now, Mary's predestination is different than the general predestination to grace and glory in the general divine will of salvation. The difference is that her predestination is unconditional and irrevocable in a way that is analogous to the predestination of Christ. So you might wonder, uh, why? Right? What is, what is it about her predestination in particular that's so different, so unconditional? The reason we say this is because Mary's confirmation in grace is specifically ordered to the divine motherhood of the incarnate word an event that occurs necessarily, properly speaking. Right? So in God's notion of creation, the Blessed Virgin is included necessarily as the maternal bride of God due to her one flesh union with the Logos. There is something unique and special about her place in salvation history that surpasses that of any other human being Right? There's no other human person that is so intrinsically necessary for God's plan of redemption and glorification as the Blessed Virgin. So if we make a comparison here, that might be helpful. In a certain sense, my identity, for instance, or any of our identity really, but we'll, we'll just use me as an example, my identity as a father or a university professor right is predestined for you know and i know that because that's what has happened in actual fact right i can look back at my own history and see well that's what happened so that must have been predestined uh so those are predestined but those aspects of my person are not cosmically intrinsic and necessary for my identity and existence right i could have been a priest right i could have been taken any other job, right? I could have married somebody else and had different children or no children at all, right? But Mary's vocation as the Theotokos is in fact cosmically intrinsic. It's necessary. It's an unconditional aspect of her identity as this particular person. So the plan of salvation would not generally be affected if I were predestined to glory or not, right? The universe would go on without me if I wasn't here. Uh, but God's plan of salvation requires Mary. So, I, you know, hopefully that, hopefully that's clear, right? That's, that's quite a different thing. Now, this name is really interesting too, right? This title, 
of Mary that she's given in uh, one of the early councils of Theotokos. Right? Theotokos is Greek for the God-bearer. In Latin, that would be de genitrix. Right? So the, the divine logos incarnate is the maternal product of Mary, if we want to use that kind of vocabulary. So she, she alone right, is the maternal principle of Christ. Christ in his humanity has a maternal principle with no corresponding paternal principle, right? So Christ's humanity is born from woman, whereas his divinity, right, as the son of God, as the pre-existent word, right, we know that he proceeds from the father. So there's this really beautiful kind of harmony where he springs forth from the father as the divine person, right, from a paternal principle. And in history, in time and space, it springs forth from a maternal principle, right, being incarnate and born of the Virgin Mary. So Mary is alone in the singular nature of her motherhood. It was the two councils in the fifth century, the Council of Ephesus in 431, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451, that dealt with the what we call the monosubjectivity of the son. In other words, there are not two subjects in Christ. There are not two sons. Right? We don't have Jesus, the son of Mary, on the one hand, and the word, the son of the father, on the other. Right? So the when we talk about the monosubjectivity of the son, we mean that when he's when Christ is born to Mary, right, we're just talking about one subject. There's one person here. There is just a single son, a single subject, a single person, a single essay, right? A single being here. The word does not somehow gain anything it does not already possess. And so God doesn't have something added to him quantitatively right, by taking on human flesh, because we know that all creation comes from God. So when he is incarnate in the man Jesus Christ, he comes to possess what he already has in his divinity in a new way. So in this sense, it's it's kind of like the question about the divine missions of the Holy Spirit and the Son, right? the temporal missions of the Word and Spirit, where we ask, well, if God is everywhere, which is our sort of the you know basic Christian teaching on the presence of God in creation, we say, well, God's present everywhere. Well, then what does it mean to say that the Son and the Spirit are sent? Right? Because you usually, right, normally you don't send someone to a place they already are, right? You have when you, when you send someone, you're sending them from here to there. It doesn't work quite the same way with God because He's present in one way to all things as the as the Creator, right? But in one sense, right, the Son and the Spirit are sent to us so that they exist among us in new ways. So this is how He is sent to us here. Now, all of this talk about the monosubjectivity of Christ is to back up this theological title of Mary as the Theotokos, 
And the reason that's important is because we don't say that Mary is the anthropotokos, the the man bearer, and we don't say that she's the Christotokos, the bearer of Christ. These are different suggestions, I guess you could say, in the right the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. In the early church, there's different attempts to understand the mystery of Christ and what this person is and who they are. And so there's these different theories about the person of Christ, and that's why this title of Theotokos is so important. Athanasius, right? St. Athanasius writes against the Arian heresy, and he uses this title of Theotokos. Now, um, it's interesting because he uses this title not as something that he creates anew. In other words, he seems to be using this title in a way that would draw on the language of popular piety as this was just something you know that everybody kind of knew and was using for quite some time at the writing of Athanasius. And that makes a lot of sense, right? If, if this is so, the, the language is clearly already widespread. The subtuum prayer we, you know, goes all the way back to at least the middle of the third century, so right around AD 250. So the subtuum prayer, if you're not familiar, goes like this. Beneath thy compassion, we take refuge, O Theotokos. Do not despise our petitions in time of trouble, but deliver us from dangers, only pure and blessed one. So we know historically, right, this is a, a title given to Our Lady very early on. So it's something that Athanasius uses in his fight against the Arian heresy. And so we see sort of wrapping up here, right? We, we see why Mariology is so important, not just because of who Mary is, but also in relation to who Christ is. There's almost no topic of Mariology that does not directly deal with her relation to her divine son. And so next week, we're going to explore the figure of Athanasius and his fight against the Arian heresy and we'll talk about Nestorius and the Nestorians, and we'll continue to explore this reality of Our Lady's divine motherhood. So I hope to see you then. 